0: Karen Coe, and uh, we're ready to talk to our first guest of today. So, while the world's been focused on the coronavirus pandemic, the secondary effects of the virus are turning out to be just as serious. So one thing the pandemic is doing is worsening the hunger crisis in the world's hunger hotspots and creating also new epicenters of hunger across the globe. And just yesterday, the United Nations warned that 265 million people could be pushed to the point of starvation by the end of this year, unless urgent action is taken. Well, we're delighted to be joined on the line now by Dr. Daisy Tam, who's Assistant professor at the Hong Kong Baptist University. Daisy teaches and researches urban food systems and practices with a focus on food security. So, Daisy, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me, Karen. It's lovely to be here.
0: Yeah, well, it's such a big topic, but also such an important topic. Can you sort of start off by telling us, especially if listeners are not really sure, what do we mean when we talk about food security?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, A lot of people confuse food security with food safety. And while food safety is very much part of food security, um, food security actually encompasses uh, a much wider uh, range of, of, of indexes. So food security generally refers to um, when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preference for an active and healthy life. So there are quite a lot of elements, as you can see, to that particular definition. But I would say the three main ones are availability,
0: access and use right so
1: yeah so that's 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 the official definition of food security
0: and in general in in this day and age say if we didn't have the coronavirus pandemic does everybody have food security i mean how how serious is the problem
1: Unfortunately not. Um, even before the pandemic, um, around 820 million people in the world uh, suffer from hunger. And that's a huge number. And that is also spanning a range of um, places with different uh, environments. So, for example, we have chronic hunger, whereby um Whereby countries or certain um, places are particularly poor, where access, economic or physical access to food is not possible, so we often associate the problem of hunger with developing economies, um, because we think about hunger as only um, as as chronic hunger. But the reality is, even a place as rich as and an abundant as Hong Kong, um, also. See, uh, Well, we also have a significant amount of people who do not have food security, so who are food insecure. Um, The manifestation is obviously a bit different. Um, We often see malnutrition instead of chronic hunger. So it's about people who don't have enough to eat um, in terms of quantity, or even if they do uh, have enough to eat, they might not have sufficient nutrition to sustain their daily activities.
0: It's quite shocking, isn't it, when you realise that there are uh, wealthy countries where, and, and net food producers where people within that population are not, one, not getting enough food and not getting nutritious food. How does that happen?
1: Um, we've been seeing a lot more of this. And I think the reason why I focus on urban food security and urban food system is because it's precisely because how cities actually experience food insecurity very differently. Um, so, like I said, you know, food insecurity has always been associated with developing economies. So people in their mind have these images of very thin children, um in in very rural areas, Um, whereas urban food insecurity can be a bit invisible because we can be walking by people who are suffering from food insecurity and they look like you and me. Um, Mm. In cities, the problem is more about uh, access. So we have a very huge discrepancy between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And um, because we have such inequality, uh, we do uh, see then um, people not having enough to eat, uh, and the lower end of of the demographic groups.
0: Now, when we add to this the coronavirus pandemic, can can you explain to us some of the ways the pandemic has affected uh, food supply and food security? Um,
1: yeah, I think there's there this one is a is a big one, and it's still ongoing. So I would just say, in general, there are. Maybe two streams that I see at the moment. So the first one is obviously um, about the global supply chain. The fact that we had such huge disruptions to the logistics, supplies, air freights and all this meant that a lot of the produce which we depend um, on uh, are not coming into Hong Kong at the regular rate so this has affected uh, uh our supply chain and 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 our imports and this is something that i feel as a lot of people have mentioned and this is sort of the macros uh macro scale i would say on the more micro scale on the day to day scale i would say that people who are um who are the, the socially socially vulnerable i mean who are they right so the kind of the daily wage workers um the people with low mobility for example the elderly um these people who depend on a very strong um, network or a neighborhood network or a district network uh, to support them um might be might might have already been um um, dependent on these networks to support their day to day living and without certain uh, regular support because services have been uh, curtailed or something, then they also suffer from 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 extra disruptions
0: so I would say yeah there there are kind of two um, two streaks to that mm. and when we talk about food supply chains i mean if you go shopping you know pretty much in any city in the world you're buying food from all over the world and can those <laughs> supply chains adjust quickly or does that take actually quite a long time
1: um <laughs> this is a really good question the logistical supply chains are um are definitely global uh in nature um there are many different uh, different branches to it. So I think there is redundancy built in. I think in that sense, um, mm-hmm. we are not fully reliant on just one particular supply chain. So within that kind of um, logistical network, I think there is redundancy built in whereby they can diversify quite quickly mm-hmm. and react quite agilely to then source their produce from somewhere else. Um, but... But the, the problem is also that it's not only just global, but that these global corporations are held by very few corporates. So I think in one of the um, or in many of the reports that we see, um, some something like, for example, four main traders um, would own over half of the percent of all grain and soy production, right? Mm. And for seed ownership, like three, the three largest companies control over 50% of all the seed production. And if you start thinking about that, like if we depend so heavily on other people to produce our food and if all of these ingredients and commodities are being traded and are being held by global corporations, um, in fact, food security and that global food trade is, is a matter of concern. Of course, like, and then if you say, oh, what can we do in Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. Um, then it's more about trade deals and about un- um, putting food security at the heart of. Our trade deals and our our, our uh, regulations and organisations, um, but it is global in nature, and this is not specific just to Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, I when when you look at what's become the I guess you call it the industrial food complex, it, it really is all about big companies, as you say, controlling uh, seeds, controlling um, certain uh, types of agriculture, and controlling the, the entire process. So is it's it does seem like that there's um, something wrong with our food system globally when all that concentration of power is in with just a few companies.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And I think there is a silver lining to all of this, which is that people are realizing how much we are, in fact, dependent on this global supply chain. And people are turning to other resilience measures because as much as we cannot um, depend on, or as much as we can't imagine returning, quote unquote, you know, returning to a time when we can provide uh, ourselves with what we eat, at the same time we can't continue in this particular direction where so much of it is is held in in within corporate control as well as you know global production. And even if it wasn't just about the control, it's about the logistics, it's about the supply chain. I mean, everything is hugely dependent and interlinked with one another. And so when something as big as COVID happens, then we feel it and we mm. feel it reverberating around the world. And so I think the silver lining to this is that many cities who are who are already engaged in sustainable food policies or resilient food uh, systems are actually diversifying. I mean, diversifying is one of the ways in which we could be a little bit more risk prepared And so diversifying then often means looking at more local and regional supplies, boosting smaller hold farmers and producers. And I think we do have that in Hong Kong. I mean, we do we can look at um, Hong Kong local agriculture as part of our resilience measure. You know, um, and I think this is one of the ways to think about this.
0: Yeah. And do you think that there, I I mean, I feel like there's a growing awareness in Hong Kong of things like the impact of buying jet flown foods from overseas on things like carbon emissions and the environment and climate change uh, more long term and also the Mm -hmm. benefits of of um, eating food that you know where it came from, and you know w- what the soil quality is like, and whether pesticides have, have been used. Do you think there is a lot more awareness of this and and the importance of it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, organic food. Um, all of these health food movements have done a great job in promoting people's awareness about. Uh, food and health and nutrition and well-being, well-being to themselves and also to the world and the environment, right? So, as you say, carbon emissions, you know, soil erosion, all of these things are much more in people's awareness and everyday vocabulary. I think what um, here in Hong Kong, what we have specifically is the fact that we don't have the same kind of... um, Shall I, (laughs) aura is not the right word for package or branding with local produce. Right.
0: Right. Um, It's not as glamorous. (laughs)
1: It's not as, yeah, it's not as glamorous for some reason. So I think there are a lot of benefits to boosting this kind of local produce, both in terms of, um, yeah, environmental uh, uh, effects, where it doesn't have to have so much carbon emissions, having to transport it to market, but also just think about it in nutritional value. If the supply chain is shorter, then we don't need to cultivate or harvest those vegetables days in advance it could be done in the morning and then in the afternoon you'll have it in the market and so the nutritional quality of those produce would be much higher even though it doesn't have the branding of organic or or fair trade or all all of these things and it doesn't doesn't mm -hmm.
0: have to it doesn't mean that it's going to be more expensive does it?
1: There is a cost uh, difference between mass produced and local small scale uh, production. I, I think there is a there is a markup for sure. And I think there has to be uh, ways in which we could sort of um, broker that. So on the one hand, yes, it is definitely um more expensive than if you buy industrial mass-produced mm-hmm. um, food. But at the same time, for those who can't afford it, um, then it could be buying into better health because then you will have less uh, worries about your, um, your doctor bills. Um, right. it, this could be one of them. Um, and it plays out a little bit more long-term. But I think on the food security level, the price difference has to be also... Um, taken into account and made more accessible, you know, can we not offer different places for these local vegetables to be sold so that they don't have to pay retailers and, and uh, d- distributors like supermarkets the extra charge to be, to be in competition with the big, uh, large-scale farms, mm. right? There are different ways of, of making these accessible and accessible both physically and financially. And I think we can look into that both in terms of health and 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 but also resilience and sustainability for the city.
0: Yeah, so it's really up to, to people to be creative basically about how they're doing this. And actually on that note, we're going to pivot a little bit because um you know you teach in the Department of Humanities and Creative Writing at Baptist University. Let's talk a little bit about creativity and 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 the arts.
1: <laughs> right. So I'm a big <laughs> I'm a, um, I'm a big fan of the arts and I feel that um, many many of the research that have been promoted or being pushed forward or even subject areas that are being held um, or upheld are other STEM subjects, the hard sciences. So here I want to do a plug for the arts <laughs> because I feel that, yes, we are all researchers and um, in academia we look to data we look to empirical evidence in order to analyze and we try and understand what's going on in the world and there are different ways of um, studying each subject area the arts also has our own methodology and we also look at data except that the data is not only numeric in value it's not only quantitative um, people's reactions people's um, manners their practices their ways of, in my case, dealing with food and interacting with food, the way they communicate around that. These are all evidence, empirical evidence that needs to be taken into account when we do policy as well. So I think in the sense that the arts and humanities also offer us um, an approach to study society where humans play a huge part and that's the arts is something that really helps us position position ourselves and understand that kind of relationship by taking on scientific methods in order to put forward research that are impactful and take um, um, people into account. So I I do think that um, because very often people hear about my research and they're all like, what do you study? And I'm like, well, I'm in in the humanities and creative writing and they are like, well, why are are you into food (laughs) science? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And my simple answer is that because none of us has the answer to all of these social issues. We need to collaborate. We need to work interdisciplinary. Um, We need to have perspectives from both the hard sciences as well as the arts and humanities. And it's only through collaboration that we can, I
0: hope, (laughs) finally find something for the future. Great point, it is important to have a balance. Well, Daisy, thank you so much for talking to us today and uh, great to learn more about um, food security and also um, the importance of the arts. So Daisy Tam, thank you so much again for your interview today.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me, Karen.
0: And we've been speaking with Daisy Tam, Assistant Professor from the Department of Humanities and Creative Writing at Hong Kong Baptist University.